Um, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. As I'm catching my breath, you can be turning there. Isaiah chapter 9. Jack read a couple of verses from this passage. I want to read a few more and set the stage for what we're going to be talking about this morning. Bible students know about the prophets. They know that the prophets wrote to encourage and admonish the children of Israel to return to God before it's too late. Isaiah writes to Judah to tell them to return to God before it's too late. Sadly, the majority of them won't. There will be a remnant that will remain. And it's passages like what we read here in Isaiah 9 that speak to that remnant and speak to the fact that even though the majority of God's people are going to go away into captivity and, and uh, turn from God and already had turned from God, there still is going to be that remnant that remains, those that are going to be faithful to God. And while the prophets are prophesying about the doom that is ahead of these uh, ones that are turning from God, there's always in the, within that message a, a message of hope, a message of promise. And that's what we read here in Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1, it says, But there will be no more gloom for her who is in anguish. In earlier times he treated the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali with content. But later he shall make it glorious. By the way of the sea, on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now right there, that ought to give us a little bit of a clue about what he's going to talk about. Galilee of the Gentiles. We talk about the ministry of our Lord. He spent a great amount of time in Galilee. So when we see words like that, the regions like that, it gives us a little bit of hint of what he's going to be talking about. And especially as we read on, we understand what he's talking about. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in the dark land, the light will shine on them. They shall multiply the nation, they shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For thou shalt break the yoke of their burden, and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and cloak rolled in blood, will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You see Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Messiah prophesying about the time when there will be a kingdom set up and a kingdom that will last forever. A kingdom that will be not of this earth, but will be established while this earth is still here. A kingdom that will rule over all the other nations. And who is the head of that kingdom? Well, the king is, right? And who is that? Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus Christ will be the King of that kingdom. And so this morning I want to talk about what the King has said about his kingdom. 
You see, Jesus came to establish that kingdom, and we're in the kingdom now. Those of us who have put on Christ, those of us who are children of God, those of us who have become citizens of the kingdom. We're living in the kingdom now, and there is an eternal rest that waits ahead of us when this life is over. But the king has a lot to say about his kingdom. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13 is going to serve as the majority of our text. If you'd like to set a marker there, we're going to be back and forth a couple of different places, but most of what we're going to be talking about this morning comes from Matthew chapter 13. And the reason it does is because the king in Matthew chapter 13 talks about his kingdom. And he does so in a very um, interesting way. Not unique, but interesting. Parables have been around for a long time. And the, the casting alongside is what parable means, and those illustrations to prove a point about what the, the speaker is saying, that, that's, that's common use. But our Lord uses them, uses them so beautifully. He speaks so beautifully of the kingdom, and he uses parables to speak about his kingdom. So this morning we're going to look up in Matthew 13 and look at the, some of the things that the king has said about his kingdom. Most of it coming from here in chapter 13 of Matthew. So what has the king said about his kingdom? As we look at the kingdom here that is spelled out and talked about in Matthew chapter 13, let's understand that this kingdom that Jesus is talking about comes from very small beginnings. In the first part of chapter 13, we have the parable here, a very familiar one to us, is the parable of the sower. Look in chapter 13, beginning verse 1. It says, On that day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and great multitudes gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole multitude was standing on the beach, and he spoke to them uh, in parables, saying... So here's setting the stage for what he's going to talk about here. He's speaking to them, and he's going to be talking in parables to them. And he speaks this first one here in this occasion about the sower. He says, The sower went out to sow. And he sowed, some seeds fell beyond the road, and the birds came and ate them. And others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. But when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. And the others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out, and the others fell on the good soil and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has an ear, let him hear." You see, the kingdom starts very small, and in this one and a couple of other parables in this chapter, he's talking about a seed. You know, we look around us, especially in this part of the world, we see beautiful flora around us, don't we? we have beautiful plants and trees and flowers, and it's a beautiful area. Those things come from tiny little seeds. That's where those things come from, those plants and those things around us. So we understand about the seed. A mighty oak comes from an acorn. So the kingdom comes from those small beginnings. In verse 18, our Lord explains this parable, and he talks about the different soils and the different hearts of men and how uh, the soils represent those different kinds of hearts within men. And he explains that it's that good soil, it's that good heart of a man where the seed takes root and grows and flourishes. That's how the kingdom starts. So it's very, very small. Look in verse 33 of Matthew 13. Here's another parable. Very small ones, one verse. He spoke another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, 
which a woman took and he hid in, and she hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. Here again, the idea of something very, very small having a great influence. We talk about that leaven, that little bit of, of leaven, how that makes the dough rise. It's just a little bit within the lump. So the kingdom starts uh, from very, very small beginnings. And the idea here is the hearts of men. Sowing the seed. We'll talk about the seed here in just a little, bit, a little bit more detail in just a moment. But how that planted in the hearts of men grows. And from a very small beginning, how the kingdom then grows. And from small beginnings, the kingdom does indeed grow. Look in verse 31. In verse 31 it says, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Here's another seed in our discussion. Which a man took and he sowed in the field. And this is smaller than the other seeds. So not only are we talking about something small, but we're talking something smaller than the other seeds. But look what he says about it. But when it's full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He's talking about the kingdom. We'll go back to what he says. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. It's very, very small. But when it grows up, when it flourishes, what does it say? It is uh, larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and nest in its branches. That's the kingdom that we're talking about. That's the kingdom of God. From small beginnings, how it grows. How it grows into something that's very large and something that is very useful. In this parable, that's what's being talked about here. Something that is useful. Something that provides uh, cover and shade and, and, a, and a, uh, a home for these birds. Think about what the kingdom is to us as Christians. One thing, one thing that's interesting about the kingdom, look over in Mark 4 for just one moment. As this parable kind of goes along with what we're talking about here, this parable, Jesus says that the kingdom doesn't, the one who's spreading the seed here doesn't really know how the kingdom grows. In Mark chapter 4, verse 26, he says, and he was saying, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. Here again, here's our seeds being cast upon the soil. And he goes to bed at night and gets up by day, and the seed sprouts and grows up, how he himself does not know. So in this parable, what he's saying is the man goes out and spreads the seeds, and he, he's expecting them to grow. He's wanting them to grow, right? But in this parable, he says he doesn't really know how. The mechanics, the, the biology, he doesn't know exactly how it grows. Verse 28, the soil produces crops by itself. First the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. When the, crop, uh, when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. Now the idea here, uh, let's not lose sight of, we know how the kingdom grows. We know that the kingdom grows by the spreading of God's word. We know that it's our job to be that sower. That's our job. Our job is to go out and sow. We don't have any control over what the dirt is, what the soil is, the hearts of men, as Jesus explains to us about that parable. We don't have any control over that. But what we do is we plant. We sow the seed. I heard it said by a good brother that, you know, if, if you hired that sower that Jesus is speaking about, at the end of the day, you might fire him. 
Because why is he sowing seed on the road? On the road? Why is he sowing seed in the ditch over there? You'd probably want him to sow seed where, the, where, where you plow the field, right? That's where you're probably going to get your most, the bang for your buck if you're going to go out and sow seed. But the importance is that you sow the seed everywhere with no consideration about what kind of uh, soil it falls on. That's not our job. Our job is to spread the word of God. And we know that the kingdom grows, but with this parable, he says he doesn't really know how the seed grows into a blade and then into the head and then to the, into the seed and so eventually you come to, to harvest all that. Think about this. Think about the, the, the people that we talk to, the people that we meet, the visitors that have come in. And by the way, thank you all for being here. I don't believe I said that to begin with. You're going to go back to your homes and, and, and your places of, of worship and, and meet with your brethren or, or, or your other friends and family. And there might be something that I say today or something that has been said today that you might say to them that might spark something in them. And they, if they're living in sin, they might turn from that. It's not anything that I have done other than sow the seed. But I don't know. I know we have some folks from, from Illinois, from South Carolina, from Birmingham. I don't know how the kingdom is going to grow from here. But what's my job? My job is to sow the seed. Our job is to sow the seed. So in a sense, we really don't know how the kingdom grows because we can't see it. But we know that it does grow. Because we're spreading God's word. So the kingdom grows. It's our job to spread that seed wherever we can, wherever we have opportunity. We sow the seed. And as we come to understand that this kingdom becomes exceedingly valuable, think about it. We're talking about the souls of men and women. How much more value can there be in a kingdom made up of the souls of, of men and women. Look in verse 44 of Matthew 13. We have a couple of uh, parables back to back here, verses 44 through 46, but there's two parables. The first one here about the hidden treasure in verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and, and sells all that he has and buys that field. How precious is that field to him? So precious that he sold everything that he had so that he could have that field. That's how precious the kingdom of heaven is. It ought to be worth everything in our lives, everything that we have. That's how precious the kingdom is. Verse 45, he says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Brethren, when we find that kingdom... Those, if I'm speaking to someone who's not a Christian in this audience, when you understand about the, the value of the kingdom, you ought to be ready to give up everything in your life for it. That's how precious it is. It's worth everything that we have. That's how precious the kingdom is. And it comes down to this. Every citizen of the kingdom is precious. As we've been saying, the kingdom is made up of the, of the souls of men and women. How precious is the kingdom? Look over in Luke 15 for just a moment. In Luke 15, there's three examples here about how precious 
the kingdom is and how precious each and every soul in the kingdom is. In Luke 15, we have three parables recorded for us. We have the parable of the lost sheep, we have the parable of the lost coin, and we have the parable of the prodigal son. We're not going to read all three of those, but I think we know them well enough to understand, like with the lost sheep, he says, who among you who has a hundred sheep and he loses one does not leave the 99 to go out and find the one? He says, when you find it, you lay it up on your shoulders and you go back rejoicing. And the people come out and say, uh, verse 6, And when he comes, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice for me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. Look what Jesus says in verse 7. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. How precious is every soul and how precious is every convert to the kingdom. In verses 8 through 10, we have the lost coin about the lady who has 10 coins and she loses one. And what does she do? She, she sweeps her whole house out till she finds that one coin. And she does the very same thing. She calls and says, look, I found the one coin. And the people will rejoice about that. Look what Jesus says in verse 10. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. How precious are the souls in the kingdom. And then we have the prodigal son. If you don't know any other parables, you probably know the prodigal son about how this, uh, this son asked for his inheritance from his father and his father gave it to him and he went off and he, he spent it foolishly till he was down to nothing, till he was living off the food that was being thrown to pigs. At that low point in his life, he went back to his father and his father said, get out of here. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Right? No. His father welcomed him back. His father uh, butchered the fatted calf. They had a party. They had a celebration for the return of this one who came back. How precious is every soul in the kingdom. Final point that we'll make about the kingdom as spoken here in Matthew 13 is that the king judges his kingdom in righteousness. We spoke this morning in our Bible class about how we, would, how we want, how we uh, desire to have a righteous judge when we stand in the presence of our God. And we will. We will have a righteous judge. And the king judges his kingdom in righteousness. First of all, he does this in, in the parables that we're speaking of by removing the offensive things that have been introduced into his kingdom. And this speaks of the, the parable here recorded in verse 24 through 30 about the tares among the wheat. Let's read a little bit of this. Matthew 13, beginning verse 24. He says, He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. Here we go again. Here's the sowing of the seed. And look what is said here. The kingdom of heaven is compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. So this is a man who has prepared for the, where this seed is going, and he is sowing good seed in it. But while men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, do you, uh, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you are gathering up the tares, that you may root up the wheat with them. 
allow both to grow together until the harvest. And at end time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. That parable is maybe a little bit hard for us to understand, and I appreciate so much that Jesus goes on and explains this one to us. Look over in verse uh, 36. And he left the multitudes and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares in the field. So here we have, there's a few occasions where Jesus explains the parable that he has spoken, and this is one of those occasions. And so this is wonderful for us to hear our Lord explain it. Look, look what he says, verse 37. And he answered this, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. That's Jesus Christ himself. And the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. So that tells us about who, who is, in the, is represented by uh, the wheat and the tares. The good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. These are children of God. These are citizens of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. The tares are those of the world who are still in the world. Verse 39, And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. So Jesus spells out exactly everything that he's said in this parable. And it rings a little bit more true to us. It rings a little bit more, it should ring a little bit more uh, sobering to us. And the idea, verse 40, Therefore, just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. See, those that have been left to grow along with uh, the children of God, those who are still in the world, we, we, they're still here, aren't they? We still live in a world that has these tares in it. But there's coming a time when the tares are going to be gathered up, and it says, burn with fire. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom um, all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as in the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has an ear, let him hear. Jesus explains this parable. Explains about the kingdom. How he's going to remove the offensive things introduced into his kingdom. And even within this, there's a separation. You see the separation of the tares and the wheat. Down in verse 47... This speaks again about the separation. Here's another parable in verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. So the, the, the net is thrown into the sea and it gathers all kinds of fish. And what happens to those fish? They're separated. They're divided. Verse 48. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers. But the bad fish they threw away. So this tells us about the kingdom, how the king judges his kingdom in righteousness, that there's a separation between good and evil. Verse 49, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Brethren, the warning is there. And it can't be any plainer that those who practice lawlessness, those who are not practicing righteousness, have a certain fate that's ahead of them. And it's not a pretty one. 
It's a fate of fire. It's a fate of uh, the furnace weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a terrible judgment. On the other hand, the righteous will enter into the rest. The righteous will enter into heaven, into that abode that has been prepared for us. So the kingdom will be pure. Our king will see to that. It's one thing I want to make sure that we understand. We need to know this about our Lord's kingdom. Look over in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We live in a day and age where sin is excused. Where we try to, I say we, I say the world. The world seeks to minimize sin. Seeks to be inclusive to a point where sin is tolerated. The Bible speaks very differently about it. 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 9, it says, or, or do you not know that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? So this kingdom that we've been talking about is reserved for righteous people. Scripture says the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. I don't know how to put it any plainer. This is what the Bible says about those who will and will not inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you. To me, that is the, is the point of the arrow in this passage. That is what cuts the most. Remember, he's writing to Christian brethren here in Corinth. And they had a, a whole slew of problems that he had to write to them and address. But he reminded them that they had come out of the world. Before you get too haughty, and that was one of the problems that they had, puffed up, proud, this was some of the problems that the Corinthian brethren had. Before you think about that and get too on your high horse, what we might say, such were some of you. Some of you, that means that some of them were in this list, doing something among this list. And he tells them that those people that are doing that will not inherit the kingdom of God. But there's hope in this too, isn't there? Such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. That's grace, isn't it? That's mercy. That is God providing a way out of sin. There were some in that list. They were practicing things on that list. But they were washed. They were sanctified. They were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Washed. They were baptized. They were sanctified. They were set apart. They were justified. They were made right by the things that they did in obedience to God. So while we talk about the kingdom, let's understand that these blessings and the things that, that we've talked about in, the, in 
in the kingdom are only available to the citizens of the kingdom. Those who are outside the kingdom are those who are still practicing such things. Remember what it says, and such were some of you, past tense. Not any longer. They've come out of that. They've been washed. They've been sanctified. They've been justified through obedience to Jesus Christ. So our final question will be this. Are you a citizen of the kingdom? Have you been washed? Have you been sanctified? Have you been justified? And all that comes through obedience to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Through hearing and believing the gospel. Hearing and believing the things you have heard today and many more about our Lord. See, our Lord is that king, and he is sovereign over his kingdom. Hearing and believing and understanding that we may fall somewhere on that list that Paul gave here to these Corinthian brethren. Or maybe something that's outside of this list that's still sin. There's an opportunity to turn from that. There's an opportunity to take advantage of that such were some of you. To be in the past tense. So that we can put off those things. But that requires us to repent. To turn from those things. And to confess who Jesus Christ is. Understanding that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is that Messiah that Isaiah prophesied about. The one who would set up the kingdom. And be the Prince of Peace. To rule over his kingdom forever. If you've done those things, you are ready to be washed. You are ready to go down into the waters of baptism. And when you come up, you're a new creature. You walk in newness of life. You get to, be, you get to speak of your sins in that past tense. Such were some of you. But it's our job then to continue on as citizens of the kingdom. We can look in many other places, and especially as the our Lord speaks there, the Sermon on the Mount recorded for us in Matthew 5 through 7, Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We can look there and see what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom, that there's certain expectations. We have to be, uh, we have to continue in our obedience to the king if we want to be considered citizens of the kingdom. If you're not a citizen of the kingdom, I would encourage you to become one. If you're a citizen of the kingdom and you're not living up to the expectations that the king has put in place, I would encourage you to make that right. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you. <laughs>